0: Good morning and welcome again to Hiawatha Church. Uh, My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, like Leah said, we want to welcome you to our church. Whether you're a visitor, whether Hiawatha Church is your home, we are glad that you are here uh, this morning. Again, a a special uh, Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. If you are a mother or were a mother or would like to be a mother, today we want to wish you a very happy Mother's Day. We're grateful for all that you do to care for so many people especially your children, but even beyond that. And uh, a special Happy Mother's Day to my wife, Amy, and uh, my mother, Kay, and my mother-in-law, uh, Diane. Um, had to get that in there. But uh, I love you guys. Uh, I, you mean a lot to me. And uh, again, to all the mothers out there, Happy Mother's Day. Hope you have a really great one. Uh, right now, we as a church, we're in a sermon series in uh, the book of Psalms. And so the book of Psalms is as a collection of a bunch of songs written uh, thousands of years ago, uh, many of them written by King David, and we've been in, uh, the, I believe this is our fourth week in uh, the book of Psalms, and this week we're going to look at another one of those psalms, Psalms one, uh, Psalm 145, uh, and then what, we'll have one more week next week to wrap up this series, and then uh, in two weeks we'll be starting the Old Testament book of Ruth, so uh, that's where we're going as a church. If you want to read ahead, you can. Uh, it's an exciting, great uh, book in the Old Testament that we're going to hit on in just a few weeks. But uh, today we're going to look at Psalm 145, the last psalm that King David wrote. And we're entitling this sermon, uh, O Worship the King. It's an entire psalm, an entire song written to, de- to uh, declare God's goodness and to worship our divine uh, King who is reigning. And so here in the last, this is actually the last song that... Uh, King David wrote in the book of Psalms, we're going to see David powerfully and poetically sing praise and give worship to the king of the universe. And David masterfully uses the Hebrew language and even the Hebrew alphabet to write this uh, uh, all-encompassing profound song of worship to the only being that deserves this worship. And in this psalm, David answers the the greatest question that humanity has uh, has ever asked and has ever been asking since the dawn of our existence. This question, who is God? And it's a great question, a question that we all must ask and we all must answer within our life. So as we read Psalm 145 today, I want you to be asking that question and seeing how David answers it. Uh, who is God? What, is his char- what are his characteristics? What is he like? What can we learn about him? So let's read from Psalm 145. Oh, worship the king. A song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and my king, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall put forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. So here, King David is not just writing his own uh, song, praising God, although he is, right? King David is the author of this, but he, like all other writers of the Holy Bible, are writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So although it's very true that the words that we just read are the song of a real king who really did reign in Israel some 3,000 years ago, at the very same time, these are also the words of God himself. And since all scripture is co-authored, not just by human authors, which it is, but also by the Holy Spirit, this whole Bible can be one unified story. And so, because the whole Bible is is co-authored both by a human author as well as a divine author, there can be an even greater, and even deeper meaning in Psalm 145 than David, the original author, had even uh, intended. And that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see King David write a song of praise to the God, to the king of all the cosmos. And now as readers who are living on this side of Jesus' death and his resurrection and now his reign, we can see even greater and even deeper meanings that David couldn't have even imagined. While everything that David writes is a- about God is fully true, as he praises and describes God, we now see the, those same characteristics, those same actions in an even deeper, in an even more profound and powerful way as we see them fully display in the life and the death and the resurrection and ascension of God himself in flesh in Jesus Christ. So let's look at uh, Psalm 145. First, let's look at it in context. Let's look and see what King David is saying as he's answering this great question, who is God? And then we'll close with seeing how Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1 says. And now through the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of his death and resurrection, now we can see an even fuller, an even greater picture of this God whom David is praising here in Psalm 145. So let's start by answering this question, who who is God? How does David describe God here? And as we begin to answer this question of who is God, often there is this misconception about who God is, especially if people kind of know a little bit about the Bible. There's this misconception that uh, is both in popular culture as well as even within Christianity. This misconception that there is a different God in the Old Testament than in the New. There's this idea that God is somewhat bipolar, depending on which testament you look at in reading. Supposedly, the God of the Old Testament is a God who's very vengeful. He's angry, he's distant, he's violent, and he's just waiting to strike down anyone who would dare rebel against him, who would dare step out of line. This supposed God of the Old Testament reminds us a lot of Zeus, right? Just just standing and waiting to throw down a lightning bolt of judgment against humanity, or so goes popular opinion. That is the God of New Testament, they might argue. And then there's the God of the New Testament. The God, or this idea goes that he is a God that's more like a, a hippie surfer who's all just about love and forgiveness and peace. And, te- and he's very much unlike his grouchy, bloodthirsty father in the Old Testament, but rather Jesus in the New Testament. He is a God who just wants everyone to get along and to just chill. And so, whether or not you've heard that, whether or not you've believed that, whether directly or maybe just kind of subtly you've thought that, the problem with this understanding of the God of the New Testament and the Old Testament being different or very, uh, two different gods or just a very different view of who God is, the problem with that common understanding is twofold. First, the first problem is that they are the same God. The God of the Old Testament is the same God as the God of the New Testament. Christians believe And the Bible teaches that there is one true God who exists eternally as three distinct persons. One God who exists as a trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is one God who has forever, eternally existed as three distinct persons, yet who are completely unified in essence and will and love for each other, yet while still being three distinct persons. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are each fully and truly God. Yet, they are distinct. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. And and Jesus makes this unbelievably clear in his teachings. Over and over again, he teaches that him and the Father are one. They're unified. And, And so to put Jesus against God the Father is just plain Wrong. They are the same God. They are unified. They are of the same nature, of the same essence, of the same will, and the same purpose. So that's the first problem, is that they are the same God. You can't pit the same God against each other, as if saying the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. But the second problem with this is that it's just flat out not true. If you read the biblical story, you see that God is the same in the Old Testament as he is in the the New Testament, even though that might not be popular opinion for, for, for some people. If you read the entire biblical story, you see that there's unbelievable unity and harmony and agreement between God the Father and God the Son. Additionally, if you read Jesus' about his life and his ministry and his teachings and his death and his resurrection and ascension in the New Testament, and you see his reign as king, you don't see a hippie surfer Jesus. In fact, you don't really see that at all. And of course, Jesus does teach to turn the other cheek, and he is called the Prince of Peace when the angels declare his birth. And yes, he does talk about forgiveness and love, of course. But that same Jesus also builds a whip and drives out the evil money changers in the temple. Jesus, this same Jesus, also speaks of hell and judgment more than anyone else in the Bible. And when we see Jesus pictured at the end of time, when we see Jesus riding as a victorious king into battle in the book of Revelation, we see that he has blood all over his robe. We see a sword coming out of his mouth that he's going to use to strike down his enemies. And we see a tattoo on his thigh calling him the king of all the kings, the Lord of all the lords. And in a decisive and complete battle, Jesus violently and completely defeats his people's enemies, the enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And then the birds come and, and uh, gorge themselves on the flesh of our fallen enemy. So in the New Testament, we see that Jesus is not only about compassion, gentleness, peace, and for- forgiveness. We see that in his teachings and actions, integral parts of his character and his role, as he also teaches about judgment and hell and punishment, And as he himself fights viscerally against our enemies and is himself the great judge at the end of time who sends people to hell, who refuse to repent and to believe in him and to turn from their self-worship and their pride. So Jesus is the God of the Old Testament as well. Jesus is a God of, of both compassion as well as justice. And not only that, but we also see God, in the Old Testament, we see him as a God who is described as compassionate, desiring peace, forgiving, gracious, slow to anger, full of love, and merciful to all. Case in point, Psalm 145, which we just read this morning. Did you know that? Did you know the God of the Old Testament is described as that? Merciful, slow to anger, forgiving, gracious, loving, compassionate. So when we answer our question today, this big question of who is God, let's look at Psalm 145 and see how God in the Old Testament is described. And when we look at the Holy Spirit-inspired Spirit words of King David, we see how is the God of the Old Testament described? This God who we're arguing is the same God as the God uh, in Jesus Christ? How does David answer this question of who is God? He answers it with a a resounding and declarative, He is good. He is good. So, the first way that we answer this question, who is God, by looking here at Psalm 145, we see that God is good, God is righteous. So, what is good, you might be asking? God himself is the definition of good. Or maybe a better way to say that is everything that is of the character and essence of God, that is, by definition, by nature, good. Literally, whatever God is, by definition, is what is good, what is righteous, what is the opposite of evil and wrong and brokenness and incompleteness. Jen Wilkin writes about this. She says, God is the origin of all good. He is Uh, He is infinitely good, so that even what we see of him in the very good of the visible creation, even what we read about him in the very good words of, of Scripture, is just a fractional representation of his goodness. The infinite goodness of our God could fill an infinite number of universes and an infinite number of books. So, God is good. God is good. And so how is he good? We don't just see these declarations of God being good in his nature, being the definition of what good and true and right and pure and perfect is. But David even gives us countless, many examples here in Psalm 145 of how he is good. In verse 7, we see this great declaration that David gives, this, this summary statement where he says, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. So, in one of the, the kind of uh, climax verses right here in the center of this psalm that, that d- uh, summarizes who God is and his goodness, we see that God has an abundant goodness, that people shall declare his righteousness. And that points ahead to the very next two verses, verse eight and nine, then describe how God is good how his goodness uh, pours out of him into creation and into humanity so how is god good let's look at verse 8 to 9 the lord is gracious and merciful he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love the lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made so we see these great phrases describing the goodness of god he is gracious He gives gifts to the undeserving. He is merciful. He doesn't punish the guilty. He forgives. He is slow to anger. He desires that uh, humans should repent and believe in him. He gives time for humans to turn from their self-worship and their pride and to turn back to him. He's abounding in steadfast love or or faithful love. God is, is a faithful, perfect husband to his bride. He is good to all. He is good to everyone. Jesus teaches this in the New Testament that God sends rain and provision and blessing to to not just those who fear him, not just those who worship him, but to all creation. He is good to all and he has compassion on all that he has made. God loves all of his creation. First and foremost, humanity, but all of creation as well. And in this phrase, in, in verses 8 and 9, what David is doing here, he's pulling a refrain that, that came from the book of Exodus. So back in the book of Exodus, when God has just saved his people out of oppression and slavery in Egypt, and he brings them into a land that he's going to give them for uh, a land where they're going to flourish and worship him as God and be in relationship with him. Uh, when God does that, he, he speaks to his people and he says, this is who I am. The Lord proclaims his name and says, This is who I am as a God. So what we see here in verses 8 and 9 of Psalm 145, it's a refrain first spoken in uh, Exodus. So let's read that, Exodus 34, 6 through 7. The Lord passed before him, before Moses, and he proclaimed, This is who I am. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And so the Lord's proclamation of who he is, the Lord sharing with uh, humanity his name here, it becomes a, a central confession throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over again, uh, in all different parts of the Old Testament, this is how God is described. This is how God describes himself. And we see here in Exodus uh, 34, and here in Psalm 145, and throughout the Old Testament, we see God describe himself. He says he is merciful. The God of the Old Testament is gracious and slow to anger. But he also says he is a God of justice. He doesn't just overlook sin. He doesn't just clear the guilty without payment or without punishment. And so here under the banner of God is good, the first thing we see uh, in Psalm 145 about who God is, he is good. We see that he is also good by being a just God, by punishing evil, by having anger against sin. Justice is good and it links To God's righteousness it links to his goodness and we'll best understand how this works once we get to the cross so if you have questions about this just give us 10 minutes and we'll get there in in just a little bit but the first thing we see in Psalm 145 about who is God who is the divine we see that he is good he is good C.S. Lewis helps us answer this question, too. And in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when a Mr. Beaver tells Susan that Aslan, the, the, the ruler of Narnia, the story, that he's a great lion, not a human. So Susan, she's surprised because she thinks Aslan must be a man. And so she finds out that Aslan is a lion. And then she then uh, asks Mr. Beaver, Or she tells him, she says, I I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And so she asks Mr. Beaver if Aslan is safe. To which Mr. Beaver replies back to her. He says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And he is the king. So it leads us to our second thing that we see here. Not only is God good, he is also the king the second uh, way that we see david answer this question who is god he's not just good which he is but he is also the king god is king actually in the very first verse of this psalm we see king david look to god and call him king so the, the king of one of the greatest uh, one of the greatest kings of israel ever looks to god and says he is my king i am the king i am the I am the the, the sovereign over the nation of Israel here. I am the anointed one by God. But I have a king too. He is my king. And this psalm is one of an earthly king praising an even greater king. An earthly king of an earthly nation praising the cosmic king. The ruler of all the universe and everything in it. And if you want more on this, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this today. If you want more on this, we spent a whole Uh, psalm sermon just two weeks ago unpacking God as king so if you want more go back and listen to that or Leah Miller's podcast that we just put out a couple days ago she speaks about uh, God as king and Jesus as the greatest version of a king it's really great go back and read that if you want or listen to that if you want more on this idea of uh, God as king we're just going to scratch the surface here today but the second thing we see here is that God is is king. The king of all kings. The king of the cosmos. And David just declares it. Whether we like it or not, God is on the throne. God is king. Whether we want him to be or not, it's just true of reality. But David doesn't just say that. Of course, it is just true of reality. God reigns. God is king. God is sovereign and the sovereign. But he also said it's good. It's good that the good king is reigning. It's good for creation. It's good for the world. It is right and true. It is good that the rightful, all-sovereign God reign over all creation as king. And David goes on to spend 21 verses describing to us, the reader, how God is a good and perfect and righteous king. And part of that is that they are great gifts for those who are in his kingdom. If we're a part of God's kingdom, we receive great blessings because he is a good king. And here in Psalm 145, we see that it is not just good for uh, people, but good for everything, good for all of creation. God is good not just to the humans in his kingdom, but all creatures in all creation. We read that in, in verse 9. The Lord is good to all. And he has mercy over all that he has made. And, and this is such a, uh, an important uh, theological truth that we have two whole psalms, Psalm 104 and 147, that are just all about how God loves and cares for and is good to creation. The earth and, and, and nature and animals and everything that he has made. And then David goes on, the last third of this psalm describes God's goodness. How God as a good king, how that plays out for everyone who is a part of his kingdom. Picking up uh, in verse 14, listen to how uh, this is good news that God is king. The Lord is faithful in all of his words and he's kind in all of his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and he raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, and you satisfy every desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways, and he's kind in all of his works. The Lord is near to all those who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all Who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. So, the third and final thing uh, that we see David describe, the third and final way that David answers this question of who is God? He's not only good, but he's also a king, and he's also worthy of worship. He's worthy of worship, individual worship. Each each individual creation should worship God. and, And we, as his people, as his church, should worship him. One remarkable feature about this psalm that people pick up on is how many different words that David uses to describe praising our God through worship. In fact, he uses 10 different words Throughout this psalm, extol, bless, praise, commend, declare, meditate, speak, pour forth, sing aloud, and give thanks. It's like David's trying to rack his brain to think of every possible way to describe the greatness of getting to worship our Creator. Of how wonderful it is to praise Him for who He is. And He even inserts reminders that His people will worship Him forever and ever and for all generations in his everlasting, never-stopping, unfailing kingdom. And for some of you, this idea of worshiping, or this idea of singing, or this idea of praise, might sound kind of strange. For, for some of you, it might just seem weird. Maybe that's your personality. Maybe you just haven't been around it a lot. Or maybe you have. You've come to church for quite a while, and that just seems kind of strange to you, that God asks for worship, or that worshiping him is a good thing. Um, and, and in some ways, we do get that it is kind of strange, right? It's, 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 uh, we live in a culture where this is somewhat foreign to us. We're not living in an ancient world where every human being just naturally knows that they need to praise and worship some type of deity. But even though this is somewhat foreign to our culture, we do still see it all the time. One example of this, uh, my wife Amy and I were watching the new Downton Abbey film a few days ago, and in it, the king and queen are coming to visit Downton, which, uh, which is this enormous kind of castle type thing where there's a, a, a rich family that lives there and that takes care of it and then a bunch of servants. And so in this movie, the king and queen are coming to visit and the majority of the characters, almost all of them, they are elated to get the opportunity to see and to serve and to give respect and honor to their king and the queen from the wealthy aristocrats uh, all the way down to every single one of the servants, except for maybe one, uh, they just can't wait to give respect and honor to their king and queen. To them, that's the right thing to do. It's the good thing to do. It's the just thing to do. It's joyous for them to serve and to give respect and honor to their king and queen. Or maybe for an even more close-to-home example here, just like we think it is right and good. And it should happen that we uh, give respect and honor to a hero who right now is on the front lines of this pandemic. Just like we think it is right that we, uh, we clap when, when nurses come out of the hospital after a 12-hour shift working on a COVID floor or when uh, police cars line up and uh, do things to, to, to respect and honor uh, nurses on the front line, or we love that there's commercials about it right now that are showing honor and respect to heroes right now. Just like we feel that, how much more is it good and right and just for the greatest being imaginable, the greatest hero, the creator, the perfectly good king of the universe to receive the, the respect and the praise that he rightly deserves. So even though worship In giving praise and honor to another can seem kind of strange at times. We actually do this all the time in our culture, though maybe it looks just a little bit differently, or we don't call it worship, but we do. So we are called, and it's good for us to worship our God, to give glory to our victorious King. And maybe you might be saying, okay, I kind of get the respect and the honor part, but... Just the singing part. The singing part might be kind of strange to you. Isn't it kind of weird to get together with a bunch of adults and and sing songs together? And maybe that's partly true a little bit, but even in our culture, we have places for this as well. We do the same thing. We honor the birthday girl by singing happy birthday to her. We give her respect and, and honor by singing a song to her. Or we join with tens of thousands of other fans and we sing Skull Vikings together to give honor and praise to our sports team. So even in our culture, we do have lots of places where we actually do sing in order to give honor and give respect and glory to something we think deserves it. We sing about it along with others. But not only is it uh, something we should do as, as, as uh, creation and as individuals, and as a church, but it's also just good for us. We are designed to worship. We are created to experience joy and to experience fulfillment and comfort and meaning as we worship. We can't help but worship, whether we like it or not. We are created for it, so we will always worship something. We will, we will worship false gods. We will worship comfort or pleasure or other people or other things which can never fulfill us, can never give us joy or fulfillment or meaning, or we can worship the one true God. It's a good thing for us to worship. It's what we were designed to do. So on top of God deserving the glory and the worship we give him, it's also beneficial to us. It's a good thing for us. We flourish when we worship our God. So who is God We might ask, we should ask. We see in Psalm 145, God is good. God is king, and God is worthy of our our worship. And we see out of, as we continue to read the Bible, we see out of God's goodness and his love for us, that's what leads him to send his son into the world. The great problem of sin and death fills the Bible, fills the Old Testament, fills the Psalms. And because of God's goodness, and his love for us, his compassion and mercy and grace, we see that he sends his son into the world as the fulfillment of Psalm 144, as the solution to the great problem that keeps Psalm 144 uh, happening in in our lives. David's final song, Worshiping the King, Psalm 145, is most fully seen and understood through Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God. So as Psalm 145 uh, says, we should worship and praise and and, uh, show the worthiness of the divine King. When we look to Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, we see what this looks like. So Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, he's the fulfillment of everything that Psalm 145 declares. He is the, the... answer to the promises that are given back here in David's last psalm. And in Jesus' death and in his resurrection, we see the pinnacle of God's goodness. We also see him as the risen and victorious king. And we worship him both individually and as a church. We now worship him through the gospel. We now can have communion. Sins can be forgiven. We can be reconciled to our God now through faith in Jesus Christ. So we see Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of everything we see in Psalm 145. We see Jesus as the fulfillment or or, or the filling out of the question, who is God? He is king, he is good, and he is worthy of worship. And we see all those fully understood in the gospel. So the first thing we see, let's look at this. The, the, The truth is that we see God's goodness ultimately, and most fully in the gospel. Lydia Brownback, in her uh, commentary on this exact psalm, she talks about this. She says, everything God plans for us, even the painful things, are rooted in what he knows is good and right. And our all-knowing, all-powerful God governs the details of each of our lives with pure kindness. So whatever he gives and takes away, provides or withholds, uh, we can trust him absolutely. After all, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, with him, graciously give us all things? She gets that from Romans eight thirty two. So the greatest act of goodness that that was just hinted at, was just whispered about that David couldn't even imagine would come. The greatest act of our God's goodness. The greatest act of his love is the gospel, is sending his son into the world to live the perfect life we could never live, to die the death that we deserved, die in our place, to raise from the grave victorious, and to ascend and reign on high as king now. And that aspect of God's goodness will never change. Other aspects of his goodness might seem to change. Maybe he's given you good gifts of of a family or a job, of people who who love you, other type of tangible, physical, relational, health, uh, really good gifts. But those might not last. Those probably won't last forever. But the greatest act of God's goodness is the gospel. And that will never change. When you wonder, is God good? When you wonder, does God love me? Don't first go look to your family or your friends or your health or your career or your personality or your experiences or your possessions, but look to the gospel, something that will never change and is the greatest gift, the greatest act of God showing us his love and his goodness towards us. It is in the gospel that we see how God can be both incredibly loving and merciful and compassionate as well as justice, or as well as just. It is in the gospel that we see how God can be both righteous and loving. Be both holy and merciful. See, without the cross, you could argue without Jesus' death and resurrection, you could argue, well, how is God just? How is God a good judge if he lets sinners go unpunished? How is God good, Psalm 145, how is God good, David, if he's also forgiving. How how does that work? Or, without the cross, you could also maybe argue, how is God loving? How is God merciful if he punishes people? How is God loving if he is a God of justice that judges the guilty? And we all lean towards one or the other. Our hearts, where we grew up in, uh, the, the nation, the time, the culture, our personalities, we all lean towards one of these. Wanting God to be more just or wanting, to God, or wanting God to be more loving and less just. All of us tend to fall in or to want one of those. We naturally want God to be uh, either just or merciful. Either a holy judge or a gracious savior. But the problem with that is that the cross did happen. And not only that, but we need both. We need justice and love. We need punishment of evil And we need mercy because the evil is inside of us. We are the enemies. We are the ones who are guilty. And it is through the cross that God's justice and his love kiss. God is able to be just. Evil is punished. The guilty are not cleared, as we read in Exodus. The wicked are destroyed. God's enemies are defeated. Justice is given for the victims. And forgiveness is offered to all. Mercy is poured out and it overflows in unthinkable ways. Grace is shown in scandalous amounts. People are able to receive forgiveness and reconciliation and be made whole and, give, uh, and, and be given new life. At the gospel, or in the gospel, at the cross, God's justice and his mercy come together. We see how God is good. Right? God's goodness is both his love, his forgiveness, his compassion, and also his justice and punishing evil and hating what's wrong and bad and hurts people. And what we see in the gospel, we see that all those things described in Psalm 145, all those things described in Exodus 34, and over and over and over again in the Old Testament, as God says to humanity, this is who I am those six things that we repeated a couple times throughout the sermon so far today, we see that those all are most fully seen and understood and received through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God is gracious, and especially grace. The way we see his grace especially and most profoundly is through the gospel. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing." It's a gift of God. Through the gospel, we see mercy at the highest level. Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the gospel, we see God being slow to anger at the, at the greatest level. Uh, 2 Peter three fifteen says, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. He does not just wipe out sinners immediately. And he also is patient with you and me. You are still alive. Jesus has not returned yet to judge the world. So we see God being slow to anger at the fullest extent in the gospel as he waits for more and more to repent and to believe. We see God being the... the, we see the greatest version of God's steadfast love, abounding in His faithful love towards His people. We see the greatest version of that in the gospel, as Jesus calls himself the true and faithful bridegroom who will never leave us, the true husband who will never abandon us, who will never cheat on us, and who will always be true. We see God's goodness to everyone most fully in the gospel. Acts 10:38. Uh, describes this. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And we see the ultimate version of God having compassion on those he has made. We see the ultimate version of that in the gospel. John 3, 17 says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that in order that the world might be saved through him. So how about the church? As we read Psalm 145, as we read all the Psalms and spend one more week in it next week, let us look to it with, with great truth and great excitement and also see how they are foreshadowing of the gospel, how Jesus is in the Old Testament and in, uh, here in the Psalms. Let us not just stop as if we are uh, Jewish people in a synagogue. Listening is something true, but not the the, the the fullest example of it. But rather, let's, let's get to Jesus. Let's see how Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 145. Let's read the Bible as if there is a divine author, not just human authors that couldn't even think about what Jesus Christ would look like hundreds or thousands of years in the future. Let's read it as if... Uh, There is a divine author, and as if Jesus is the fulfillment and the true and greatest version of everything we see here in the Psalms. And let's worship our one great true king who is good. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Psalm 145, all the goodness that it brings us to hear who you are. We pray that we would trust in you, that we would put our faith in your son, and then through that faith would now be able to rejoice even more that we are uh, saved, that we are reconciled to the, the creator of the universe, the king overall. And we thank you that we're on this side of the cross, that we can see how everything beautifully and powerfully described in Psalm 145 is fulfilled in the gospel, in your son's perfect life and death and resurrection and ascension. Let us worship you truly and fully now uh, through um, the salvation and the reconciliation and forgiveness of sin we receive in the gospel. Pray this in your powerful and saving name, Jesus. Amen.